Let us pray. God, we come before you this day hungry. Hungry for a word from you. A word of hope. A word of grace. Make our ears attentive and ready to receive you in this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Where is God in a pandemic? I don't know if that question has crossed your mind in these past weeks. It's entirely possible that it hasn't. I know there are lots of other very immediate questions and concerns and tasks that may have suddenly moved in and taken up all of the free space in your mind right now. Practical things like, how am I gonna manage working from home? Or what am I gonna do with my kids in the house all day, every day? Or will I be able to travel to see family this summer? Or what will happen if my job is eliminated? Or how are my loved ones in far off places coping with this strange and fearful and uncertain time? The practical concerns abound and there's that ever-present steady drip of news as well. So maybe your mind has been full to the brim and you haven't been asking that big cosmic question about where God is in all of this. Or maybe you have. As people of faith, part of a tradition that claims God to be powerful and good and committed to the well-being of this world and its creatures, it is a perfectly natural question in a time of so much upheaval and uncertainty. Where is God in a pandemic? That was the title of an editorial written this past week by James Martin, a Jesuit priest whose writing I often find helpful. This is not a new question, Martin reminds us. Plagues and pandemics and natural disasters have showed up before, and all along Christians have wrestled with the question of where a God whom we confess to be both good and powerful is in the middle of it. Martin takes note of and pretty quickly dismisses two of the tired answers that often get toted out to try to make sense of suffering. Suffering is a test, some say, God's way of giving us an opportunity to grow in our endurance and our faith. Maybe that answer works for a minor trial, like suffering through a meeting you wish you did not have to attend. But when it comes to the scale of hurt that we are seeing right now, the idea that suffering is a test sent by God can't help but make God out to be a monster. Suffering is God's way of punishing people for their sins, others say. This favorite answer of televangelists glosses right over the reading that we heard last Sunday, where Jesus' disciples ask him whether this man begging by the side of the road is blind because of his sins or his parents. Jesus' response, of course, is that sin has nothing to do with it, period. God isn't in the business of, hur of hur hurling illness at people as a form of punishment. Sure, you could find verses in the Bible to support either of those old explanations, but in the end, they don't hold up well at all to the task of reconciling a good and powerful God with the very real pain we see around us. 
Martin dismisses them both and finally lands here. In the end, the most honest answer to the question of why the COVID-19 virus is killing thousands of people, why infectious diseases ravage humanity, and why there is suffering at all is, we don't know. For me, this is the most honest and accurate answer. We don't know. For me too, that's the right answer at this moment. There is so much we don't understand here. And I know of no explanation that helps all that much. Which brings us to the question that Martin says is there before Christians right now. Can you believe in a God that you don't understand? What a question that is for this moment and also for the fifth Sunday of Lent. Because the God pictured in our reading from the Gospel of John today, that one that we just heard read, is one whom I, at least, struggle plenty to understand. On the one hand, this is Jesus at sort of his most ethereal and distant. At times in this story, he seems to be kind of hovering a few miles above ordinary human experience. When word reaches him that his beloved friend Lazarus is ill, Jesus responds, not with obvious concern or a sense of urgency, but rather with this sort of bird's eye view of the situation, declaring that this illness will not ultimately lead to death, but is there for God's glory to be displayed. Then after delaying for some days, he suddenly says it is now time to go to Bethany and do something about Lazarus, who by this time, of course, has died. You can understand why the disciples were a little confused with this whole approach. If this disease is nothing to worry about, then why are we going? And if we were needed, why didn't we go right away? So on the one hand, Jesus seems to be kind of floating above the scene, making abstract theological pronouncements and acting in these confounding, superhuman ways. And then on the other hand, Jesus looks like any other person when he finally reaches the tomb and this atmosphere of profound grief surrounding it. Suddenly he is there grieving and weeping with the rest, greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved, as the gospel puts it. He's not up in the clouds here, but down on the rocky ground outside the tomb, there beside his friends, sharing their experience, sharing their tears, sharing their rage at death. They are both there in this story, a Jesus who seems far beyond us and a Jesus who is right beside us. The Gospel of John doesn't solve that puzzle, but simply leaves it there. Jesus remains mysterious and unpredictable, earthy and ethereal, stubborn in not conforming to our ideas and expectations. So what is a person of faith to do? What does it look like to believe in this God right now? This God whom we struggle to understand. I think our psalm today gives as good an answer as any. Psalm 130 is one of the best known psalms in the Bible. And there are multiple reasons for pairing it here with the story of Lazarus. One of them, of course, is that memorable opening line, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Those words could be Mary's or Martha's. 
In their grief, in their frustration, in their anger, they cry to Jesus from the depths, from the low place where they have suddenly found themselves. That's one reason for pairing this psalm and this reading, I'm sure. But it's not the only reason. And I think there's another one besides. Coming down to this verse. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who wait for the morning. From the perspective of Mary and Martha, this story is very much one of waiting. Waiting for word to reach Jesus, waiting for him to arrive, and what better image is there for waiting than the one we have in this psalm? When I hear that verse about those who watch for the morning, I always think of the guards at the Augusta Victoria Hospital in Jerusalem. I lived in the guest house on the hospital grounds for a couple of years, and when I woke up in the morning and left for work and passed through the gate, there were the guards who were just finishing their night shift. They would give me a sort of haggard wave as I passed, and as I continued on my way to work, I often found myself wondering what their nights were like. Augusta Victoria is a hospital focused on providing very specialized care. There's no emergency room, no ambulance there. So I think the night shift at the gate was probably very quiet most of the time. The guards had each other for company, a little television, a radio. I never could have much of a conversation with them because my Arabic was never that good. But I have to imagine that those dark hours could get very long sometimes and that they waited for the daylight with great anticipation. Anticipation, yes. Vigilance for what might happen on their watch. And also the assurance that even if it seemed to take a long time, even if the night seemed to drag on forever, morning would certainly come. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Friends, we're in this moment when life has shifted dramatically in a very short span of time. When we can't see very far ahead, when fear and worry have showed up and sometimes feel like they've kind of settled in to stay, we are on the night shift right now. But our faith reminds us that morning will come. Because even if we struggle to understand, we know that God is faithful. A week or so ago, I learned about a movement here in Geneva to light candles in the windows as a sign of hope. Maybe you've heard about this as well. I've been joining in these past few evenings, placing a tall candle on a window ledge in my apartment facing neighbors across the way. I don't know if they can see it or if they know what it means, but I choose to think they might and that it's one small way I am not letting despair take over. I'm waiting, trusting in the God whom I have known to be faithful and whom I trust is faithful still. I think it is amazing that in our gospel reading, it seems Martha and Mary never stopped waiting, never stopped expecting Jesus to show up. It was a long time after all, days with no word of his coming. But when he finally arrives, Martha runs out to meet him 
And even in her confusion, even in her grief, she has these words of profound confidence and faith. Yes, Lord, I believe. That's what I think we are called to in this time when we struggle to understand, to continue knowing what we know to do while we watch and wait, caring for those around us, checking in on others, praying, singing, lighting candles. Friends, we are on the night shift right now, but we wait like those who watch for the morning, who trust that it will come. We continue to trust in this God, whose love is stronger than anything, stronger even than death. Amen.